Welcome back to Over Here. My name is Nick Finzer, and today we're chatting with a fantastic multi-readist. That's Owen Broder of Cowboys and Frenchmen, but he's up to much more than just that one project. Today, we connected while he's on tour uh, with The Bodyguard, the Whitney Houston musical, but he's about to be back in New York for the summer and about to head off and do a lot of his own projects, so it's very exciting stuff coming up for him. And I wanted to have Owen have a chance to talk about his brand new artist share project called Heritage, as well as the new Cowboys and Frenchmen album that's coming out in October of 2017 on Outside In Music and a few other things that he is up to. And that's combined together with our new series that's the Top 10 series. So we're kind of catching up with artists and also getting to know them a little bit better through their music. So if you want to hear Owen's Top 10, just go ahead and go to the Outside In Music, go to the Over Here podcast page, go to Owen's particular blog, and then uh, just click on over at the link to his Spotify playlist and you can check out all the music that he's talking about either listening in tandem or listen after. So here we go with Owen Broder. Hey Owen, uh, thanks for coming on the show today and uh, it's been a little while since uh, our audience has heard from you. I thought maybe you could give them a quick update what's going on uh, with you, where you're at right now and some of the projects that you're working on. Yeah, Nick, thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to Given the debrief. Um, so right now I'm in California, kind of in the in the last few weeks of a musical theater tour I've been doing of uh, the Bodyguard. Um, so I'm looking. Uh, it, it's it's been it's been a great experience, and now I'm looking forward to playing some music that's not Whitney Houston. Oh sure. Um, and uh, so Cowboys and Frenchmen. Um, recorded our second record in, in February and we're, uh, you know, just finished mixing and mastering that. And so we're, we're looking at, uh, we're looking ahead to releasing in October, which we're really excited about. This, this album is all original music. Um, and the stuff that we're very, very happy with, very proud of. Um, we're going to be playing, uh, in, in two weeks, we're going to be at the DC Jazz Festival on Saturday, June 16th playing uh, a full two-hour set, um, which is going to include some of the new stuff as well as some of the material from our first record and, and uh, some stuff that hasn't been recorded yet. Nice. Um, so that's, yeah, we're, we're really excited about that uh, that event. And uh, as I understand, we're going to be seeing you a little bit in, uh, in Italy. We're both going to be playing at the Umbria Festival. Yeah, I think so. So that'll be cool. That'll be a much shorter set, but uh, but we're looking forward to some some good wine, some good food, some good music. Yeah, man, that'll be fun. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so that's kind of that's kind of what's on Cowboys and Frenchmen's uh, horizon. We're you know just kind of preparing for that CD release. Um, another project of mine called the American Roots Project uh, is going to be recording. An album in conjunction with Her- uh, in conjunction with Artist Share. Uh, the album is going to be called Heritage. Um, it'll be an eight-piece band using American roots music uh, as a as a source to to present um, new you know, original um, original compositions and interpretations of that uh, American roots music in a, in a jazz context. 
Very cool. And uh, I know that you're currently in the middle of uh, of a, I forget, like an artist share project kind of that's going on right now. Do you want to share some details about that? Yeah. So, so this, this album heritage is an artist share project. Um, and artist, artist share is um, a crowdfunding platform, kind of like Kickstarter, although it's uh, it's only for musicians, and they have and they hand select their roster uh, with project that, projects that they want to be a part of. Um, so uh, this is on their platform, um, and and uh, the Eastman Eastman School of Music also plays an interesting role uh, in this project. Eastman has recently developed a relationship with Artist Share. Um, and essentially Eastman's role is, is to endorse, um, you know, anywhere from like one to three projects that come out of artist share, uh, specifically from people related to Eastman. So I went there for undergrad. Um, and so they've, they've selected my project to endorse, um, which is kind of exciting. Uh, that's, it's a nice, nice thing to, nice little nod from, from my alma mater. Yeah, that's awesome. And I know, uh, do you want to tell people a little bit about the personnel? And I know there's some really cool composers writing some music. Yeah, so it's I'm very excited about the team that's working on this. Um, we've got kind of the, the full gambit uh, for composers, all of whom are, are on the forefront of composition for improvised music. Um, we've got uh, Alfonso Horn. Uh, trumpet player uh, in New York, Miho Hazama, um, uh, Jim McNeely, and, and Bill Holman. Uh, and I'm going to be writing a couple as well. Um, so very excited about the writing team and the players are uh, equally as uh, um, formidable. Um, we've got uh, Sarah Caswell on violin, Scott Winholt on trumpet. You're playing trombone, which is going to be fantastic. I'm very excited to have you be a part of this. Um, I'm playing the reeds. Uh, Frank Kimbrough on piano. Jay Anderson on bass. Matt Wilson on drums. Um, and we're going to, on a couple tracks, we're going to have a few guest vocalists. Kate McGarry is going to be singing. Uh, Wendy Gillis from the Gil Evans Project, among other things. And uh, Vuyo Sotache. Uh, so it's it's a really great team, uh, and I think very well suited for this project. Well, very well suited for uh, the integration of these two genres specifically. I think they're going to realize uh, the concept very, uh, very well. I'm really excited about it. Awesome, man! Yeah, it's going to be an exciting, exciting thing. So, where can people go to kind of find out more about the project? So this project has uh, its own website, which is www.americanrootsproject.com um, and from there you can get all of the background on the on the project as well as uh, the details for the different levels of participation and the way that works is um, when you participate you you purchase a level of participation of your choice which can be anything from pre-ordering a digital version of the album all the way up to uh, one of the premium levels of participation. Um, and what that means is that uh, not only are you receiving the album when it comes out, but you're also watching the process, watching the creative process unfold. Um, 
along with receiving uh, several other benefits uh, associated with each level. So on the project website, you get a sense of what that is, and from there, uh, you can you you can either go through this website or go directly to Artist Share um, and search the heritage uh, heritage uh, in in the search bar and, and their project. Uh, they'll you know they'll bring up the project page. Um, so yeah, so either the project page itself, www.americanrootsproject.com, or go to Artishare, and you can learn all about this project and uh, the various ways that you can get involved. Awesome, man. And uh, before I forget, where can uh, what's the best place for people to find out about the Cowboys and Frenchmen uh, upcoming events and release? Cowboys and Frenchmen also has our own website, www.cowboysandfrenchmen.com. Um, and we try to keep that up to date with all of our events and announcements. Um, both the American Roots Project and uh, Cowboys and Frenchmen have mailing lists. So if you'd like to stay in touch with us um, and, and you know make sure that you don't miss any of the news that's coming out, um, get definitely get in touch with us through our through our uh, different email lists. Awesome. So. I think it would be cool to kind of talk a little bit more about uh, the behind the scenes of the of the heritage project a little bit if you feel comfortable. Uh, I'm just curious: is this the first time you're doing a a crowdfunded type project? Yes, I I have not um, engaged in any you know Kickstarter or any of the other platforms. Um, this is also my first artist share project. This is my first crowdfunding um, endeavor. Uh, which is a really interesting process. Yeah, I think I think it is as well. And and so I was wondering if you might be able to share any, you know, interesting insights from having gone through the process so far in terms of either creating, you know, something int- an interesting project number one, or or creating um, the the kind of technical like reward side of things or whatever levels. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, so, like I said, Artist Share is kind of unique in the way that they do things because um, they're not only uh, you know selling what happens at the end of the project, what happens after the release, what you get after the release. The big sell here, the big appeal for being a part of an Artist Share project is that you're watching everything happen uh, leading up to the recording session and through. Um, so you're you're getting insight from the composers as to what they're listening to, how they're approaching this concept, um, what their plans are for their arrangements, and then developments as they write. Um, so which, which is an, a really interesting thing. And, uh, you know, more, I, I'm, like I said, this is my first one, and, and at this point we're still uh, receiving the compositions. So I'm very interested to to see what kind of news comes out once all the pieces are written. Um, but there'll be things like interviews with the players and how they're approaching this music and live footage from the recording session itself. Um, so it's, a, it's interesting in that you get to really be a part of the creative process and watch the album get made, um, which I think makes it more personal. Um, I think I think that kind of helps 
the audience be invested in what the project is, not just what comes out of uh, the end result. Right. Um, so it's more of an experience rather than a product per se. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so that's that's the unique aspect of artist share. And and so just you know when you were trying to come up with like oh what you know what can we offer or you know what what sort of experiences can can we create that are unique to this project how did you kind of come up with all of that that's a good question and and brian camilio uh the, the man behind artist share he was a huge help um he he really knows what he's doing and and was able to provide some really valuable insight um and one of their goals is to as as they put uh create a disappearing price point you're not they want to avoid selling tangible things that have specific values like t-shirts um or you know it various uh kinds of swag as you as you might sure <laughs> but it's, it's more about sharing experiences like lessons or um you know dinner with some of the some of the uh musicians um it's it's things that you really can't put a price tag on um because that's in the end, I think more valuable. It, it's it's you know as you put being a part of the experience rather than having a product. Um, so I think you know that that that's what shapes uh, a lot of these rewards and benefits and levels of participation. It's uh, a deeper and deeper you know as you, as you get higher and higher in the levels of participation. It's a deeper and deeper uh, way of experiencing this project. Totally. And uh, so, when uh, when do you think we could expect to be able to see the? Uh, well, I guess it's not really the point, but uh, the recording session I know is in August. And when do you think it's going to be released? So uh, we're we're planning on releasing in March of 2018. Um, we've we've got a team working on preparing us for that. Um, and so that's that's what we're expecting, and, and uh, we're all looking forward to to that date. Very cool, and uh, yeah, well, I appreciate you sharing a little bit of insight there. I know there's a lot of great projects on Artist Share, so uh, head on over there and check out not only Owen's project but all the other cool things that they're doing. And one more time, the website for your project is AmericanMusicLab.com. American Roots Project. Oh, sorry. www no worries www.americanrootsproject.com great awesome and so the other reason i wanted to talk to you today was uh putting together some spotify playlists because i think that there's no better way to get to know an artist than to kind of check out where they're coming from musically through the albums that really were important to them so you were nice enough to kind of share a bunch of records that were important to you and uh i thought maybe um you know, people that are interested in any of these projects of yours might be interested to know a little bit more about you musically. So I thought maybe you could kind of run down some of these records and why they're important to you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, go ahead. Yeah, the first one I see here is Back to Back, Johnny Hodges and Duke Ellington. Yeah. Um, Johnny Hodges uh, has always been and continues to be one of my uh primary influences uh, and, and favorite saxophonists of all time. Um, and this is one of the few small group albums that he's a part of. Um, 
and it's I, I've uh, you know it's one of the first records that I really checked out in a serious way. I transcribed several of his solos off of this album, um, and uh, it's 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 one of the ones that I continue to come back to because his interpretation of the melodies, his improvising as a soloist, uh, is uh, is so special and on the forefront of this album. Yeah, no, yeah, I mean, I'm right there with you. He's amazing. And I should add that uh, probably these are in no particular order. They're just kind of all influences, yeah? Correct, correct. It's not a rating of best to worst or anything like that, but... Right, yeah, no, just a random random uh, stream of consciousness kind of list. Totally. Um, and um, so does, is Johnny Hodges, like, is he like your main alto influence or... Or there's other ones mixed in there too. Uh, he, I would, I would, I could probably say that he's uh, the main one. Um, I mean, obviously there are, are many, many more players uh, who I respect and admire, and who have contributed to, um, you know, more, just more uh, contemporary sound. Um, but at the root of it all, for me, I think is Johnny Hodges. His so, inflection, his way of interpreting melodies is, is uh, my favorite, if you will. Yeah, man. Uh, so can you place us? Like, where were you when you first heard this record? Like, what was the... Where did you find it? Yeah, actually. So I was um, I was in school. I was in high school at North Carolina School of the Arts. Um, and at, at the same time, Eddie Barbash was there, uh, formerly on the Colbert Show. Um, and he also... Uh, is a big fan of Johnny Hodges. I think he continues to cite him as his primary influence. Um, and so he hit me to this record. And uh, I remember, um, I actually remember listening to a lot of CDs on, on this list uh, with him and and some of our other friends that we were hanging out with. Um, so he really hit me to this record and and, and kind of helped me dig in a little bit deeper into Johnny Hodges and, and and his concept. Awesome. And so the next one I see here is uh, Money Jungle. Yeah. Um, this one, I, I like vividly remember this scene when, uh, when I first heard this. We were at a friend's house, um, and uh, it's just like a few of us. And I, I was just like, I was, on, I was sitting on the couch, and I heard Caravan Come on. This, so this is a trio record with um, Duke Ellington, Max Roach, and Charles Mingus. Um, you know, it's, so again, you know, Duke Ellington is not super known for his small group stuff. Certainly more so as a big band leader and composer. Um, so this is kind of a rare gem, certainly for these three people to be playing together. Um, and Caravan came on, and. The way that the track starts is uh, Duke Ellington is kind of repeating a single note uh, in, in part of the higher register piano. Um, or Charles Mingus is, is playing. Oh, no, Charles Mingus is repeating that note in the higher register of the bass. And then Duke Ellington comes in with the melody of Caravan in twelfths in the low octave, and it's so strong. I, I like remember just falling off the couch and listening to the rest of the track lying on the floor. It was, uh, <laughs> I just remember having a ball listening to this thing. 
Nice. And yeah, that's that's a really unique record if uh, people haven't heard that one. That's that's a killer one. Yeah. Uh, how about this next one? This Black Saint and the Sinner Lady. I don't think I know this record. This is this is another kind of, uh, I think, rare gem and, and something that's really special. Um, a friend of mine, also in high school, uh, uh, Ryan Layton, um, introduced me to this. He was uh, just... Uh, if if it's of interest, Ryan was a classical guitar player um, and uh, did not really he didn't really play a whole lot of jazz, but he knew as much if not more than most of us about uh, you know the history of the music and uh, so I always looked to him for for uh, for a lot of music recommendations and he he recommended this uh, he hit me this record Black Saint and the Sinner Lady by Charles Mingus. Um, and there's a lot going on on this record. It's a very, very large ensemble um, with some interesting contributions from from different um, instruments. Um, there's there's one of the movements. So this is this is a large movement work. I think there are um, four movements of this piece, um, and one of the movements is kind of a flamenco. Uh, well, I don't know if it's flamenco, but it's it's a you know the, it features a classical guitar player, um, and it's just kind of an interesting bridge into a different world from from the traditional Mingus big band. Um, kind of in the same way that Gil Evans was bridging the gap between uh, jazz and orchestral music. Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna have to check that one out because I I'm not familiar so. That's cool. And uh, continuing on, I see Dexter Gordon. Yeah, Dexter is uh, is one of my favorites. Um, in, in a lot of ways, his, his, his style is very, very different from Johnny Hodges. Um, you know, you think of Johnny Hodges as full of inflection, um, you know, that, those characteristic scoops into, into notes that create so much drama. And when I think of Dexter Gordon's sound, um, there's, I think, a significantly less amount of, of inflection. You know, he'll just attack a note and, and just let us live in that moment for a sec without changing, you know, no vibrato, just a direct attack uh, and, and such a pure, amazing sound. Um, so something very different from Johnny Hodges, uh, and, but, but something I, I love just as much. And this is just kind of a classic record for me and, and for for most people, I think, um, so many kind of iconic tracks. Um, the end of a love affair, uh, is, is one of my favorites from this record. I ended up doing this on my senior recital at Eastman. Um, just, uh, a beautiful tune, beautiful interpretation of it. And he takes a really nice solo. And is this, is this another one that you found while you were still in high school or is this a later discovery? This actually was probably earlier than any of the other ones. I think this was one of the first records I ever bought myself. Um, I remember going to a record store with um, a friend of mine uh, in Jacksonville, Matt Spiegel, um, and we were just kind of exploring uh, some of the some of the icons, some of the jazz icons that we'd uh, you know heard of and, and listened to on a surface level, and, and this was kind of our first attempt to dig deeper. Gotcha. So was there was there a cool record store in Jacksonville like or was it just was it like Barnes and Noble like what was the store 
Yeah, it was. I mean, it was probably a big change. There, I'd, there was definitely. I don't think there was a you know a, a record store with a whole lot of character or anything cool uh, in Jacksonville happening. Or if there was, uh, my thirteen-year-old self didn't know about it. You weren't hip yet. Well, I didn't know. I was out. <laughs> I was out. Yeah. Okay. So it's continuing on this tenor saxophonist uh, track. Couple records here. Uh, Sonny Rollins in Japan. Yeah. So this record is is as amazing as an album. Um, one of the things that really brought me in, really the thing that brought me in, was his performance of Round Midnight. Um, it starts out with a, a an extended solo interpretation of the melody, uh, unaccompanied, um, similar to kind of the approach that um, Eric Dolphy took to God Bless the Child. Uh, just very virtuosic, excuse me, very virtuosic and um, and just Sonny Rollins exposed, you know. Uh, and uh, it's, it's just one of the most impressive um, and simultaneously beautiful presentations of, of that Round Midnight melody. And uh, so, when was place us uh, when you discovered this? Was this like a wow, like early on moment? This or? was probably in college. I think this was in college. Um, I, I, you know, in college, that's when I really started getting into uh, getting more into transcribing solos um, on a on a deeper level. With you know, in terms of like. Going, taking a step further and analyzing what was happening, um, and this might have been—I might have discovered this when I was working with uh, or studying with Jose Encarnacion at Eastman. Um, you know, I, we had to come in with a, a new transcription every week, um, and I think this was one of the ones that I brought in. Gotcha. Um, so the next one on this list, to me. I feel like uh, is a, not out of left field or anything like that, but kind of like unexpected maybe to me uh, as a friend of yours. And so the next one is Adobe by Tony Malaby. So first of all, who hipped you to Tony Malaby and how did you kind of go down the path of finding about, out about him? I think uh, our friends from Eastman, Ted Taffaro and Ben Thomas, introduced me to Tony Malaby. Um, ben did a record with him at one point. Um, and yeah, you're right. This is, I mean, Tony Malaby is certainly a departure from the trajectory that we've been talking about so far. Um, but uh, in, in addition to, to, to really loving this record um, and, and Tony's playing, uh, I, I often attribute um, kind of a turning point in my approach to, to improvising to a, a moment when Tony Malaby came and gave um, a master class at Eastman and spoke a little bit about developing, um, in, in the same way that jazz musicians develop a vocabulary um, of, of language, of playing language that comes from like the bebop history or uh, you know other, other eras of, of improvising, he talks about developing, developing a vocabulary of sounds um, so he'll, you know, he, he described that when he, his saxophone makes a sound that he really wasn't planning on, 
rather than trying to figure out how not to make that sound again, he tries to control it and figure out how to make that sound in all registers of the instrument at different dynamics. Um, and, and just like be able to recreate kind of an unusual or interesting sound um, in, in a way that he can control it and present it in whatever way that he wants. Um, and that kind of opened my mind into uh, a, a, a broader approach to what improvising could sound like. Very, that's cool. I'm, you know, I think we all have those, you know, few moments where kind of something changes, a light, a light bulb turns on, you know, and just things are much, you know, more varied and wider than we initially suspect as young, young jazz musicians. So yeah, what what is it about this particular record that uh, keeps you coming back? Well, this this was one of the first records that I heard of Tony's. Um, and it's, I do think it's one of the more accessible ones. He's playing mostly standards. Um, and it's, it, it's a trio record. Uh, and so it was kind of a nice entry point into that broader approach to improvising. Um, and as I got farther into this and really started beginning to uh, enjoy this record, that kind of helped me get into, uh, you know, open my ears into things that are even a farther departure from... Dexter Gordon, Johnny Hodges, Sonny Rollins. Gotcha. All right. And what about this next record here, Guillermo Klein? Yeah, Los Gauchos um, is, I believe, the first of a two-part project of his with kind of a uh, larger ensemble. Um, and in the same way that Tony Malaby kind of opened my mind to a new way of improvising, Guillermo Klein kind of opened my mind into a new way of writing. Um, his, his material is very layered um, and, and deals with rhythm in a very interesting way. Um, and also just, I mean, his writing approach in general is, was very different than anything I'd ever heard um, and introduced a lot more possibilities than I was aware of. Um, and it's a, it's a it's just kind of a fun record to listen to this particular album um also importantly this was i think the first time i'd heard a berry player uh chris cheek kind of come out and be presented as a soloist uh rather than just a section player um and that was at a point uh in my eastern career when i was really kind of riding the line between alto and berry um, but everything I was doing on Barry was just section work. Um, but really enjoying playing the instrument and kind of getting my feet wet in playing it in a small group setting. Um, and this record, Los Gauchos, really uh, kind of opened my eyes in terms of what is possible with a baritone saxophone as a soloist. Oh, wow. That's interesting. So you didn't really play Barry before Eastman then? Um, I started playing Barry, uh, in sophomore year of high school, but it was all, um, oh no, I'm sorry, uh, junior year of high school. And it was really big band saxophone section and saxophone quartet, classical mm -hmm. saxophone quartet. Um, but I, I definitely did not ever consider having a career on Barry 
or having Barry be a part of a career until I really heard this record. Wow. And so I that's like an interesting entry point to me, you know, from the typical, yeah. you know, Jerry Mulligan or you know, Art Pepper kind of entry point. Right. And actually, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I never really, you know, Pepper Adams and, and um, Jerry Mulligan and that way of playing is there. They are, of course, giants on the instrument, and I have so much respect for them. Um, I studied with uh, Gary Smullyan. Um, and, uh, and, and loved every minute of it and learned a lot from him. Um, I do think that after Jerry Mulligan, uh, there was not really a Barry player that had that kind of softer, more melodic approach. Uh, many of the Barry players that came after that were very aggressive and had kind of a, a more aggressive sound and a more aggressive way of playing. Um, which... I, I yeah I just I never really resonated with that respect it for sure but just didn't speak to me in a way that made me want to play Barry as a soloist um, but the way that Chris Cheek played on this record kind of uh, helped me help me think or you know help me figure out that Barry could be more than what um, what's around right now uh, on the on the, you know, I guess in the mainstream, because um, he has certainly had a unique way of playing the instrument, um, and helped me kind of dig back into the roots of, of the instrument and and develop what I think comes more out of the Jerry Mulligan way of playing, which I don't think is around as much anymore. Sure, yeah, man. And for me, like this that record, this record, I actually came to it from seeing the band play at the Vanguard and not really knowing too much about Guillermo Klein's music and just being, you know, blown away uh, for, after seeing the band. And uh, I think something that really blew me away was uh, Miguel, Miguel Zanon's in that band, and uh, or he was at least on this particular gig, and he played the whole gig from memory. He didn't look at his music one time. It was crazy. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah, I've never that. seen this band. What's that? Yeah, I was gonna say, especially this like through composed style of music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, and this is this is not easy music. Yeah, yeah. writing is. I can't imagine that's an easy uh, set to memorize. Um, but anyway, I digress. So uh, now I, I see something here by Paul Motion. Yeah. Um, so this record actually is another one that Tony Malaby is on and Chris Cheek. Um, they're both on tenor. Um, and I really like this record. Uh, part of it, I think, is uh, just nostalgia. This is one of the few CDs that I that I had in my car driving around in Jacksonville. Um, and so I basically, you know, for for at least a summer, I alternated between two CDs, this one and a mixtape of pop music, trying to uh, trying to connect with my non-jazz musician friends at the school. Um, <laughs> so if a jazz musician was in the car, we'd listen to Garden of Eden, and if, uh, if one of the non-jazz musicians was in the car, we'd listen to the pop record. That's funny. A mixtape. Yeah. So... Uh... 
was this like your first foray into Paul Motion's kind of vibe? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, this was like the freest thing that I was listening to at that point. Um, but there's something still so accessible about it. You know, I mean, there's still, both of the saxophone players are really playing melodies. Um, you know, it, it's it's free in a certain sense, but it's it's still, you know, very closely tied to the jazz tradition um, in a more conventional sense, I think. Um, and a, I think a beautiful way of playing uh, playing in that in that style, playing with that approach uh, in a way that you can your ear is still tied to these melodies and, and can really lock in. Gotcha. And now um, there's a couple, just a couple more records here. I see a knee body, and then the last person, I don't know who that is. But yeah. Let's talk about the knee body one first. Right. So knee body, I remember hearing their name for the first time from Natalie Kressman when, uh, when I was in, uh, I think, uh, you know, junior year of high school. We were doing a, a conglomerate um, you know, summer summer jazz thing together, um, and she mentioned that Meebody was one of her favorite bands. Um, I don't really know. I don't know why I remember that because I definitely didn't start listening to Meebody until like a year later, when uh, you know when I knew I was going to Eastman and a lot of the Meebody guys came out of Eastman. Um, and when I got to Eastman, Meebody was. Uh, you know the talk of the town. All of all of our friends were checking their records out, um, and Break Me was the first first one that I uh, got and uh, really checked out. Um, and I, I I don't know why it's my favorite of theirs, other than it was the first one that I heard, and uh, it's just uh, I, I've listened to it a lot when I got it, and it's something that I really continue to enjoy going back to. So what do you think it is about that band and that music that captured your attention? Um, I had never, I think that was like the first time that I'd heard jazz try to be so, or try to break away from um, what I had thought jazz was. You know, I mean, they're, they don't, they don't, play swing right uh in the conventional sense ever um and it's you know it's there's so much rock influence um and you know a different way of writing it's not jazz ensemble writing um the way their way of approaching harmony between two horns and then across the band um you know in terms of the harmony within a tune um is that was also different than anything I'd heard. Uh, and so, it, again, you know, like a lot of these records that we're talking about, it just kind of alerted me to other things that are out there in the world that I didn't know and, and new possibilities um, and encouraged me to, to find other ways of, of branching out. Mm-hmm, totally. Uh, you know, I listened to... Um a podcast that Ben Wendell was on recently and he was describing the music as kind of like jazz adjacent. <laughs> mm. 
Yeah, thought, that's a great way of putting it. And wow. he, yeah, he was talking a lot about not only Kneebody, but, you know, all the people kind of doing things that, you know, to musicians are in this kind of jazz adjacent territory, although it gets lumped in as jazz, you know, into the industry at large. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I feel like so many projects now are emerging that, um, you know, as he put, are jazz adjacent. They are certainly rooted in the tradition um, in one way or another, but draw on so many other things. Yeah, totally. So, um, I mean, do you feel like the the projects, like the Heritage Project, like is that going to be kind of one of these sort of jazz adjacent type projects, or do you feel like it's more... Uh, in inside than outside it's a good question and and i don't really know the answer uh because there are other composers involved with their own opinions sure um and their own way of contributing to this concept so i mean one of the exciting things about heritage is that it's in some ways out of my hands out of my control um and so we'll just i guess we'll see when they, uh, you know, when they finish writing, we'll see if it's jazz adjacent or if it's, you know, jazz in a more conventional sense. I guess uh, just one more reason to uh, get involved now as opposed to later. Yeah. All right. So, and let's uh, end with uh, this last record. I don't know who this is. So, Anais Mitchell is is a wonderful singer and kind of uh, a nice segue just from what we were talking about. Um, I was introduced to this record, Hades Town by Anais Mitchell um, a couple summers ago when I was driving around California with our friend Levy Silua, um, he introduced me to this record and um, this is a folk opera. Okay. Anais Mitchell is a folk singer um, and she took the story of uh, Eurydice and Orpheus, um, which is a Greek, uh, you know, it's a, it's a story from Greek mythology um, and the story in short is, uh, Eurydice and Orpheus are in love. They're supposed to get married. Uh, but the, uh, Eurydice, the female, she gets taken down to, uh, the underworld by Hades, uh, because he wants her for himself. Um, and Orpheus has to go down to the underworld to get her. And Hades makes a deal with him saying, okay, you can you can take her back if you play your guitar. He's a musician, so he has to play his guitar, leading her out of the underworld, but he can't look back to see if she's following him. If he looks back, then she has to stay in the underworld. Um, and spoiler alert, he looks back. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so she takes this Greek myth or this Greek tale um, and writes a folk opera uh the whole album is uh a story that actually has been presented on stage um and each of the musicians involved each of the singers involved represents a character hermes um is a character in this orpheus eurydice and hades are obviously all characters and charlie hayden's three triplet daughters are the greek choir uh, which is kind of a cool thing um so they're kind of the narrators of this. Um, and the reason why it was, a, it was a nice segue is because since this is uh, really coming out of the folk tradition, um, 
And I, I guess I should add also that um, uh, Jim Black is playing drums. There are there's jazz is is all over this record, um, but the source material from for the music is is folk. Um, and so that was kind of an eye opener, uh, and and kind of helped lead me to the idea that became Heritage in the American Roots Project. Gotcha. So this is the record. This is the one. <laughs> Well, yeah, one of them for sure. This is this is pro- yeah, this is one of the main ones that kind of steered me in this direction. Gotcha. Well, that's cool. Yeah, I I was not familiar. I'm gonna have to take some time to familiarize myself. Um, well, man, thanks so much for sharing all of this. I can it to me like talking with you about it. I think you know makes me get to know you even better, and especially you know. Be like, oh yeah, I can tell. Like you've checked that out. Now that we talked about it, like I can definitely hear that in your playing, or you mm. know, when I hear your music, it makes you know it makes a lot of sense, even if uh, it's not overt. You know, it's not obvious. I think uh, things sometimes manifest in non-obvious ways, but once you kind of talk about it, sometimes sometimes it becomes more obvious. So, so I appreciate sure. you sharing sharing that and uh, being open. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think this this endeavor of yours to get to know all of your artists in this way is a really cool thing. Yeah, so there'll be more to come. Well, Owen, thanks so much again for your time today, and I'll let you kind of resume your life. All right, Nick, thanks so much for talking and having me on your uh, on your podcast. That was Owen Broder, and we were talking about his new projects, Cowboys and Frenchmen, Round 2, the new album coming out October 2017. They'll be at the Umbria Festival. They'll be at the DC Jazz Festival this summer 2017. And if you haven't yet, go ahead and check out Owen's brand new project, Heritage Through Artist Share. All of these things are going to be very exciting. So thanks for tuning in. Take a listen to his top 10, and we'll see you back here real soon.